I'll see something. And I'm like, brilliant, that's what we're doing. So recently I saw a crushed can on the ground and I was like, great, we're doing finished drinks. So we're doing brand, brand-related brand shots of drinks that have been finished. Okay. So whether it's like the ice melted in the bottom of the glass, you know, the, the beer can that's been crushed and thrown on the floor, and then we're going to shoot it in my bold and graphic style. Mm-hmm. So then I sort of work backwards and go, right, if we're doing this, what do we need, who do we need, how do we get it organised, and then we just crack on with it as a shoot. Welcome to the Viewfinders Photography Podcast. That was this week's amazing guest, Scott Shuthino, and I'm your host, Graham Dargy, coming to you from the Granite City, Aberdeen, in Scotland. Well, it's now the fourth season of this show, and I'm so looking forward to sharing this next batch of episodes with you. And as usual, I'm talking with all kinds of photographers from all around the world, covering topics like landscapes, wildlife, Formula One, portraits, movies, and much more. Well, it's been a while since the last episode, so how have you been? Uh, Me, I've been good, just navigating the crazy times that we're living through while trying to juggle family life, work, you know how it is, I'm sure. Uh, In terms of photography, uh, it's been busy enough. I've had a decent start to the year, mainly shooting headshots nowadays, and I'm really, really enjoying that. I've also done some tuition, including an online one-to-one with a listener, which was so much fun. It's always great to meet or hear from listeners. So if you fancy a bit of photography tuition with me, whether it's online or if you're in Scotland in person, then drop me a line and we'll get something in the diary. The other thing I've been working on is the next Viewfinders Live online event. I love these events and it's a great way for you to get up close with one of the great guests from the show, learn a whole lot of new stuff and meet other listeners from around the world via the wonders of Zoom. Uh, I'm about this close to finalising the details on that, so I hope to share more information about that on the next episode. So look out for more on the next Viewfinders Live online event. How about you and your photography? I'd love to see what you've been shooting, so why not connect on Instagram? You can find me at Graham Dargy. You can follow the show at Viewfinders Podcast. And you can also follow the show on Apple Podcasts to catch up on previous episodes with amazing guests. Gregory Heiser, Scott Hargis, Donna Kraus, Jim Richardson, Howard Schatz, Alex Mustard, Valda Bailey, Mark McCall, so many other great guests from all kinds of photography genres. If you really like this show, then consider leaving a five-star review. It makes such a difference to the visibility of the podcast, and I would really appreciate it. Viewfinders is sponsored by MPB, the world's largest online platform for buying, selling, and trading used camera gear. If you've got something in your camera kit you don't use anymore, then trade it to MPB. MPB makes it easy to sell your unwanted gear, and anything you buy comes with a six-month warranty. There's a link in the show notes where you can get a valuation for your kit. So thanks to MPB for sponsoring this season of the show. Okay, on to this week's guests. Scott Shuthino is a food photographer based in Leicester, England. Scott's work is striking, using bold lighting and bright colours to create some really unique photographs. Scott's clients include Dolmio, Papa John's, Uncle Ben's, British Airways, Doritos, the BBC, Tether Tools, F-Stoppers and loads more household names. It's unusual to find photography that really stands out nowadays and anytime I do I want to find out more about the photographer. Scott's YouTube channel is a great place to start and it's packed with useful knowledge and insight for anyone who's interested in the workings of a top level professional commercial photographer or anyone who's looking to get into the industry. If you want to go deeper with Scott, he has a range of workshops and also does portfolio reviews and mentoring. I like Scott a lot. He's a smart young guy with a phenomenal can-do attitude who has a real clarity of thought about what he does, why he does it and how to get it done. I'm really excited to have him as the first guest on this season and I'm sure you're going to take so much away from this episode, including how to pronounce his name. Here's my conversation with Scott Shuthino. I need to check your name pronunciation. I was going to say you want my pronunciation, right? It's nothing how it looks. It's pronounced Shuthino. Okay. I've heard you say it in videos and I just want to... Yeah, yeah. Shuthino. Yeah, anything, yeah, that's right, yeah. 
It's Spanish, is it? Yeah, Spanish, Galician. So cool. My my daughter's friend is Spanish. The parents are Spanish, and um, it's just so cool. The, I love the accent and the way that they talk and everything. It's cool. But I can't believe they live here. So I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna take their place in Spain. That's what yeah, I decided to do. Yeah, do a quick swap over citizenship. Honestly, we we can make that work. Okay, Scott, welcome to the podcast. How's things? Pretty good. Pretty good. It's a bit cold, but it's a. Uh... Where are you based? I'm based in Leicester, so it's, it's exactly in the centre of England, I think, rather than Britain. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's the furthest point from any coast. Right good. on, no, <laughs> okay. So how, so how do you find that? I live right on the coast. I mean, right on, I mean, I, we can see the sea from ours. We're not on the coast, but we're about less than a kilometre. And we, we Aberdeen, we're used to seeing the coast all the time. You're not, how is it for you? Like, do you... Maybe you're not missing something you never had, I guess. Yeah, I guess when we ever go to the seaside, it's kind of like quite a big, a big thing. We, we like associate the seaside with holidays, I guess. Um, although my dad's family actually live so close to the coast, it's two doors from the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a, he was a fisherman when he was younger in Spain. Um, but yeah, we just live in Leicester. I guess it's only like a two hour drive to the coast anyway. Mm-hmm. I was we were talking with my wife about moving away uh, somewhere else and possibly inland and I was like yeah I don't know I don't know it, it would be weird when you're stressed or what or not you can just go for a walk you hear that rhythm of the waves it's really relaxing you know yeah it's yeah it's something really special about we love going to the seaside it's like any given chance we'll like go to a coastal town um but yeah I guess I think I'd like to live by the coast when I'm older well, we'll I recommend. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, look, I'm really excited to talk to you today because um, you're a photographer. I really admire what you do. Um, in your YouTube, I know you're very active on YouTube. You come across very clear and direct. And your photography is kind of the same, you know, it's just quite a direct kind of style. And um, it's a little different for food photography, which I really admire as well. And uh, so on your style, how would you describe the, the style of your photography? Um, I, I guess the way we sort of pitch it to people is that it's very bold and graphic, um, sometimes sort of teetering on pop art, but predominantly mm-hmm. it's like bold, graphic, very simple sort of mm-hmm. work, um, yeah. which coincidentally is very unsimple to actually do. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. So um, we'll, we'll come back to it. So let me ask you when photography sort of came into your life. Do you remember your first like was it experiences with cameras or how, how what was it that put photography on your radar yeah it was really late actually um i moved to shanghai in 2008 mm-hmm. um as a in a role of a, like a sports scientist coach kind of role um and i bought a panasonic panasonic lumix um i think it was called a panasonic lumix like a point and shoot mm-hmm. camera mm-hmm. um and we went to hong kong and bought them there because there's no vat and everything's really cheap for electronicals over there so we went and bought them I just started taking pictures around Shanghai mm-hmm. um, and I kind of enjoyed it. And it was just, you know, something fun to do on your days off. Um, and then when I came back to the UK, I went to do a master's in health related physiology. And during that time, I kind of really got into photography and I bought myself a, a Bronica ETRSI, which is like mm-hmm. a, it's like a poor man's Hasselblad. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just went around taking pictures of that. Then I started getting into portraits, um, which is not what I do now at all, but mm-hmm. That was sort of my my way into photography, I guess. Right. So, and so, what age were you then when you started to think about photography seriously? Twenty four, perhaps twenty five. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, that's really interesting. I didn't see that coming about the sports and science and all that. So, that was your passion when you were younger. You wanted to. That's how you saw your career going. Yeah. Well, actually, I wanted originally I wanted to be a professional cyclist. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I had some like complications in medical text, so I couldn't do that. Um, so instead, I went to university to be a sports scientist. So I thought it was the next best thing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And yeah, sort of went from there. And then I kind of got to a point where I was like, well, this is good, but this is all it'll ever be. There's no mm-hmm. like progression from where I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really fancy that for the next 50 years. Okay, I see. And so when you got into photography with that Bronica, it's a film camera. Um, you're shooting portraits. What was that phase of your photography journey like? What kind of portraits were you doing? How did things develop from there? Yeah, so I guess I say it was portraits. It was a mixture of portraits and just pictures of random stuff. Um, so I was quite influenced by like um, William Eggleston, 
mm-hmm. um, his sort of style of work. So it was, a, and I was developing my own film as well, and printing it at a dark room in Cardiff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was in a place called I can't remember where it was now. There's this brilliant dark room in Cardiff. Um, it was like a like an independent cinema and stuff there as well. Um, but I got the film camera because I couldn't afford a digital one. Back then, the Bronica was like 150 pounds or something like that, and you got like five rolls of film with it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas at the same time, the the Canon 5D, the original one, was like four thousand mm-hmm. pounds. Um, but yeah, it was kind of just like very natural looking portraits, very candid looking portraits, nothing particularly fancy. Um, and I started using a bit of flash as well, um, which was obviously a lot more difficult with film because there was no way to know. Mm-hmm. whether he'd metered it properly or not and I didn't have a flash meter so I was calculating <laughs> distance right. guide numbers and then but yeah bizarrely enough it always seemed to turn out okay mm-hmm. um, but yeah it was, it was very just like you know, candid and quite quite relaxed really no particular direction just busy taking pictures okay from there then when did you start to think okay this could be a thing that you do professionally how did that go? I guess it just sort of fell into it really it was like somebody would want something doing they'd offer me a bit of money for it and i'd take it and then mm-hmm. it wasn't long until i realized i could make more money doing that than i could doing my day job mm-hmm. um but at that point i carried on doing both at the same time and just sort of used my photography money to reinvest in gear until i sort of got everything i needed including a studio mm-hmm. um and then yeah i just left my job and just sort of hoped for the best and obviously hoping for the best doesn't go particularly well yeah. So <laughs> there were some uh, tight years. And when you started out, were you more of a generalist uh, or when did you start to get into food photography? So yeah, when I started out, I was very much a portrait photographer. Um, okay. I shot portraits, a little bit of fashion now and again, but it was, you know, all people related. Um, but the studio I rented, I rented from a business in Leicester who owned a lot of bars and restaurants. Um, part of my rental contract was that I shot their menus for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I started doing that. I was like, oh, "This is okay." You know, I wasn't really that first. I don't. I'm not really that into photographing restaurant food. Mm-hmm. Um, but whilst I was doing it, I also met uh, my now girlfriend, and I shot her book cover for her. Um, and then we started doing some like shoots together with food and stuff like that. And it slowly started to become more and more something I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the same time, locally to me, there were a couple of like food background companies, uh, Black Velvet and Woodrow Studios. And they were also working as food stylists too. So we started like collaborating on quite a few things. Um, and then there's a girl called Ellie who's from Boss Management, who's a food stylist who lives here as well. So we all started like, doing all these test shoots. Um, and then slowly I started to realise I was making considerably more money doing food. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that it was considerably less stressful um, because I didn't have to deal with people. It was just mm-hmm. just dealing with food. So I had a lot more creative control, mm-hmm. um, which sort of suited me, I guess. Okay. Okay, that's really interesting. I knew that the bit about the uh, renting your space was in the building of the pub or whatever. Um, and so that's just a neat way into it for you. But sudden, slowly it started to sort of take over. You found yourself in the middle of this sort of collaborative group of people. This must have been quite exciting to start to have all those pieces come together kind of organically. Yeah, well, I mean, like, when I was doing portrait work, because obviously it's a real pain in the arse to set up a portrait test shoot. You need yeah. your subject, your stylist, your hair and makeup, and all these things. Mm-hmm. Whereas with food or product or still life, you can just do it by yourself. You don't actually need anything else there or anyone else there. I mean, a lot of my shoots do have quite big teams involved in them now. But if I fancy doing something today, I could just pick up my camera and go and shoot. There's nothing like stopping me. Whereas back, you know, in the portrait days, I'd actually have to find a subject. Um, mm-hmm. which is difficult yeah yeah it's a pain i'm doing exactly the same thing this week it's a pain in the neck yeah <laughs> um so um okay so i I did want to pick up on the sort of idea of niching because i know that's something you've spoken about in your on, on your youtube channel quite a bit so when when you started to realize that the food had taken over as the biggest part of what you were doing did you automatically think okay i'm going to lean hard into this niche or how did that sort of part of the journey go? Yeah, so, I mean, I live in Leicester, which is an hour away from London, um, which doesn't sound very far from London. Um, but as far as you know, everything happens in London. Um, mm-hmm. So really, I'm like, I could be on the other side of the world for all it matters. Okay. So w- when I first sort of went, yes, food's the way to go, I kept my portrait work on my website and I sort of 
and even my food work was like split into two different styles i've got the very editorial sort of style which was mm -hmm. really going out of fashion back then um and then i had my new sort of style all jumbled up together and it was, you know there's a bit of everything going on there and i started to meet with agents um and i had an agent at the time so i had an agent called graham um, but he was a talent agent so he represented sort of like mostly celebrities and then me um but he you know he wasn't versed in photography as such so he wasn't able to give me the career guidance like that um but yeah i started meeting with agents i had a bit of interest from a few of them but they all wanted to know what it was i did and at this point i didn't really get that mm -hmm. um they're like well wh which one are you are you this are you this or are you that because we need to sell something and we can't right. sell three things it's too complicated mm -hmm. it's like mcdonald's is a fast food restaurant you know what you're getting mm -hmm. if they had like a gourmet sit-down meal in there no one would really understand what they're going in for yeah um yeah, and I was quite lucky that a lot of the agents I met with, um, they were very, very helpful, really. You know, some of them put a lot of time aside to actually help me find the right agents as well. Um, so they were like, you know, you're not the right photographer for us, but I think this person here might be interested in you. Let me, mm -hmm. you know, hook you up sort of thing. Yeah, that's um, really good. But yeah, and then eventually I sort of, I recently, I say recently, before the pandemic, I signed with Lisa Pritchard Agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and since signing with them, I've literally just like got more and more niche down, mm -hmm. um, to the point where now it's literally, it's just bold and graphic images. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like, even like the editorial food, I've got rid of all of that for my portfolio, mm -hmm. um, because it, it just dilutes what I do too much. And the more niche down you are, the more likely you are to get a job because people mm -hmm. are looking for something specific. They want that exact photographer for that exact ad campaign mm -hmm. um who shoots in the style that they sort of envisage mm -hmm. and although i could probably get more jobs if i did more things the pay would be so much lower that it's not worth my while mm -hmm. so being like a, a niche down photographer you sort of get the the big jobs uh, like the you know the six figure shoots mm -hmm. whereas being like a bit of a jack of all trades you might get two grand a day yeah. so it's, it's quite a big big difference in what you can like achieve yeah. but on, obviously on the flip side of things is you've got to absolutely one nail your niche and two have a niche that is commercially viable so it's mm -hmm. yeah it's a tricky it's a scary decision yeah it is it's hard to do i can understand that especially if you're if you want to use the term freelance like you're in your own business it's hard to turn things away i mean that's been really difficult for me i can speak to that but everything that comes up is a, is a distraction like for me I will go down any rabbit hole that I see you know if someone offered me a job doing that you know traditionally this is what I've done over the years doing whatever I'll do it and then I think oh I could kind of do more of that and I think get my whole carried away with that whereas actually niching would would just be stronger okay maybe working maybe less frequently I guess but you'd be leaning into that niche and getting better and better at that one particular thing yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I say no to more jobs than I say yes to. Mm -hmm. And I'm very kind of uh, quite quite brutal with it now. If anything comes in and it's not exactly what I want to do, I'll just say no. Um, or if the budget's not right, I'll say no. Because w when I look back through my accounts over the years, most of my money is made in like three, di three days of the year. Mm -hmm. um, anything outside of that is just noise. So mm -hmm. unless it's specifically in my style of work, I... I it's highly unlikely, unless the money was obscene, um, that I was going to shoot it, at which point they'd want a specialist for that style anyway. Yeah. And so where does the agent come in in that process? Are they super helpful in just terms of finding clients or clients go to them? Uh, yeah, they, they all sort of work quite differently, actually. Um, but generally speaking, there's there's a few ways they work. An agent won't ever get you work that you can't get. Mm -hmm. um, like at the end of the day, your work is your work. Like your body of work is what sells you, but they can help sell that body of work. Mm -hmm. um, so they'll turn up to the ad agencies, not at the moment of COVID, but back in the day. Um, and they'll be like, look, here's our photographers, here's our books. And they'll show them your portfolio, which is why the niche is so important because when they leave that room, there's probably been what five other agents in that day. Mm -hmm. and the the people in there would have seen like 50 portfolios they need to mm -hmm. remember which one was you you know so if you've got some very distinctive styled work in there it's really easy for them to go yes the, the you know the person who photographed the baked beans you know that that person mm -hmm. we want them for this job whereas if you've just got a bit of a a wishy-washy bit of everything portfolio they'll have no yeah. idea who you are by the end of the day yeah um yeah 
so yeah they do that sort of thing they also help negotiate rates um so i'm not very good at negotiating um i, I basically choose my price and that's it and if people don't want it tough luck mm-hmm. um whereas they're much better at sort of like working out around budgets and like they'll deal with all of that sort of stuff mm-hmm. um they'll sort the contracts out they'll sort the usage out and the usage payments um and we also have producers in our agency um so they'll send a producer along as well who will help obviously produce the shoot mm-hmm. um they'll hire all of the assistants digital techs retouchers uh, stylists set stylists and they'll also deal with all the invoicing for them as well and paying them um they're basically they take everything off your plate. All you need mm-hmm. to do is turn up. So much so they even rent all the camera kit for you. So I just turn up to a studio at nine in the morning and everything's there and ready to go. Everyone's been mm-hmm. briefed. And all I have to do is make sure the picture looks good. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas before that, I'd be oh, I'd be doing everything. It was very stressful, <laughs> including cash flow management, which is really stressful. Yeah, that's so interesting that, that, that you know, you're you're in a position where you're higher in the marketplace, let's say. Um, but you get the opportunity to focus more and more on what you really want to do. A part of running a photography business, like actually taking photos, is tends to be such a small part of it. Um, yeah. And you end up doing everything else. But what you've described there, it just sounds really freeing, and it must be it must be a joy for you to actually just think about the photography. Oh, it, it's it's such a, a luxury in a privileged position. It's um, the last shoot I did. I didn't even have to book my travel or hotels. I just, everything was done for me. I just turned up and it was all ready to go. You know, I didn't have to worry about the produce turning up. I didn't have to worry about who was going to be there. Everyone was there and they were already briefed. I didn't even have to explain to them what we needed to do. I was interested in how you described the shoot there, where there's a lot of different people involved, producers, different crew. So... Could you describe for listeners when you're in a, a big shoot, like I know you just came off a, a big sort of 10-day shoot, um, what kind of personnel are involved there? How specific is the brief? I, I think that's quite interesting to me. I like, I'm interested in briefs. I really like working with a brief. And how much can you just get on with the photography? Are other people's ideas in play? I don't know, maybe just briefly go through the kind of uh, creative process on that kind of big shoot, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, I mean, it varies a lot. We have a couple of clients where we get, I have complete creative control, um, right down to exactly what we're shooting. Um, but the majority of the big paying jobs, the briefs are, briefs are very tight. Mm-hmm. Um, there'll, leave, there'll be a brief for the photography, for the lighting, for the retouching. Um, they'll often be what's called a scamp, which is kind of like a drawing of exactly what they want the photograph to look like. Mm-hmm. Although in modern times, it's less of a drawing. It's more of a composite of various bits off the internet, yeah. um, which obviously sometimes defies physics, uh, which is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's our job to get that hard, soft light. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Moggy, come down. Sorry, Moggy's trying to get in on the podcast. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's, it can be really detailed. Um, and if it's not really detailed, I'll often draw a detailed image of what we're trying to do, including like light metering and everything for the assistant or the lighting assistant. Um, so they can literally set it up ready to go. Um, mm-hmm. So I just walk in and say, press the button sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so you get the storyboard from the from the agency or whoever, and then you have yep. to unpack that into like a lighting diagram um, yeah so well i don't know how everyone else does it like i I come from a background where i didn't really ever assist anybody so i just make it up as i go along Mm -hmm. Um, but what i'll do i'll I'll get the the thing i'll go right we're gonna need this camera this lens then i'll work out the sort of lighting diagram and then from that we'll get a kit list and then we'll give Mm -hmm. the kit list to the producer and the producer uh, they'll order all of that stuff to wherever we're shooting um, plus a few extra bits just in case we, you know, change our minds. We'll get, draw the kit list from that point. Mm-hmm. Um, then all of that will go to the assistant and the digital tech. And sometimes there's a lighting assistant as well who just assists on lighting. Um, and they'll be setting that up in the morning. Then when we turn up on set, there'll then be the, the stylist and set stylist or home economists um, who prepare the food and the set and all the rest of it. And they get it all set up nicely and door the witchcraft and wizardry which photoshop can't fix um and then we have the digital tech and that's a person who sort of mans the computer or stands at the computer 
um, and they will fire the camera from Capture One and they will do all the backing up and they will do all the file system and file naming organization. Um, they'll make sure Capture Pilot's running and that Zoom in modern days is running so people can see the images from around the world. Right. Um, and they'll also then export the correct for- files and the correct format for the retouchers and then it goes to the retouchers. Sometimes you have a retouch one set, sometimes they're you know, offset, sometimes it's an overnight jobby. Um, and then the retoucher does their work and they'll have a brief as well. We usually leave annotations from Capture One, um, which gets sent across to the retoucher. Then the retoucher will pass it through me. Then I'll check I'm happy with it and then it will go back to the client. Um, then any amendments sort of go back through me to the retoucher. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it can be quite a, it's quite a convoluted process in some ways, but it's also incredibly simple. Mm-hmm. So when I'm there on set, all I have to worry about is that it looks good and that the camera's pointing at the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously the less or the fewer things you have to do, the more you can really concentrate and focus. So because I've got somebody checking exposure on the computer and letting me know how much like space I've got for post-production, mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about that at the same time as worrying about moving a light at the same time as worrying about whether I should be at F10 or F13 and all these little bits. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it just really helps like bring that production to like that next level. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you've ever done a sheet where it's just you by yourself, you get back and you look at things and you go, oh, I didn't see that at the time. Yeah. Because, you know, there's just too much for you to process. But having mm-hmm. these extra hands on deck and, you know, having good people as well who you can trust to, you know, get it right. And especially with a digitech role, like it's the one I struggled with the most in terms of getting someone in for. Because mm-hmm. trusting someone to back up your files is just, it's a real, <laughs> yeah, it's a real big thing. So it's, it's I could talk about this aspect of things all day. This is so interesting to me as a professional as well. Um, but not obviously, I'm not working in the same kind of space as you are. I'm I'm sort of I I use an assistant sometimes, but most of the time I'm doing all the stuff. And then you learn from from so many times of going back and going, oh, "Why well, didn't see that?" You learn to look a lot more carefully. Yeah. Um, at the time, <laughs> so you know, the, obviously the experience adds up. But you're you're just looking through the viewfinder basically that is amazing that's that's just yeah it becomes more of a directing role i guess so i mean at the end of the day you're responsible for whether it's gone well or not Mm -hmm. um but it's like if you need a light moving you need to make that call but sometimes also the assistants are so good they can also go look i was going to move this light a little bit because i think we're getting a bit too much here because there is so much at stake on a shoot um, and there is like the commercial jobs. There's no time to reshoot them. It's got to be right because they've already paid for the media. They've already paid for the where it's going, and it might be yeah. going then two days time. Um, so like last year we had a shoot where it was literally going to print the following day. Okay. So we couldn't turn around and go, "Oh yeah, sorry about that. We've we've clipped the red path." Right. Uh, I didn't notice at the time because we've got a, a preset over it that I forgot about. Yeah, that's insane. So, okay, so uh, on that note then, where does the work typically go for you? Um, like, you, I, I don't think it's like you said earlier on, it's not like restaurants you're shooting for. It's, is it more like advertising, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's more sort of like, you know, um, household brands, I guess. Um, so we shot a load for Papa John's recently. Mm-hmm. Um, just on a shoot for a company called GoPuff. Okay. And they're sort of based in the States at the moment, but they're sort of going worldwide now. So yeah, it's normally like side of buses, side of taxis, billboards, underground stations, um, and then obviously all internet stuff. Like everything has internet usage as well. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the last time I did a shoot and internet wasn't included. That's cool though. So you you can see your pictures on the side of a bus or whatever. That is, it's good fun. I can see that. It's, it's, yeah, it's it's always nice seeing you work out and about. Um, Although the very nature of our work, we often shoot stuff on like a grey background. So we'll get like the, and then it's like photoshopped into like 10 different backgrounds. Right. And um, for various usage, because it's too expensive to shoot 10 okay. different scenes. So say we photograph some like spaghetti bolognese in a bowl with a hand holding the, the bolognese coming up or something. You know, we might do that. And then we'll cut it out and it'll be composited onto various scenes just to make it work in different media outlets mm-hmm. um which gets to the point where sometimes we'll look at an image somewhere and i'll be talking to my girlfriend i'm like is that mine did i do that <laughs> one and i've got no idea yeah um you know and it's just by, by the time things come out you've already moved on to the next job so sure yeah there's a lot of stuff out there which i'm constantly going i'm pretty sure i shot that but i won't share it in case it wasn't my work <laughs> yeah 
let me just change direction slightly. I know that um, when you're if you're having a quiet day or whatever, you you'll just do test shooting, and that's came up earlier. That from the control of what we've just spoken about to um, the freedom of the test shooting, that feels like that would be a completely different experience for you. Can you talk a little bit about that test shooting process for you? Yeah, very much so, actually. I, I, and actually, I kind of, so I, I see the commercial work, so sort of stepping back a little bit, there's like, there's a couple of reasons my girlfriend got me onto this. She's sort of like the brains of my outfit. Like, you only accept a job if, one, it's good for your portfolio, or two, it's a cash cow. And if it's not either of those things, you don't do it. So everything I do that's a test shoot is good for my portfolio. And then stuff that I do for money is either it's so much money that it's fine, I'm doing it anyway, or it aligns with my portfolio. And obviously the holy grail is when it aligns with my portfolio and it pays a lot of money. That's sort yeah. of like once in a blue moon. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I see a lot, of, a lot of the work we do is quite, can be quite boring, which pays a lot of money. Um, and I use that money to fund my test shoots because that's what mm-hmm. I want to be doing. I want to be mm-hmm. creating my own body of work. And my website is, I'd say, 98% personal work. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of use that money to fund it. So I'll get paid for a big job and I'll be like, right, what is it I want to do? What do I want to shoot? Who do I need? Let's hire the crew in. Let's get everything we need and let's create exactly what I want to create. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the benefits of getting these big commercial jobs is that my budget for test shoots can be quite, you know, quite quite high. It can be like more than a lot of photographers get paid for a shoot in the first place. And this mm-hmm. is just for like having fun, mm-hmm. um, which I enjoy. It's, it's quite, you know, it's the reason I do photography is to have fun. So, mm-hmm. yeah, in terms of test shoots, I'm just literally, I'll see something. And I'm like, brilliant. That's what we're doing. So recently I saw a crushed can on the ground and I was like, mm-hmm. great. We're doing finished drinks. So we're doing brand brand related shots of drinks that have been finished. Okay. So whether it's like the ice melted in the bottom of the glass, you know, the the beer can that's been crushed and thrown on the floor, and then we're going to shoot it in my bold and graphic style. Mm-hmm. So then I sort of work backwards and go, right, if we're doing this, what do we need? Who do we need? How do we get it organised? And I I organise all of that stuff myself. Get the team in I need. Get the retouches we need. Get everything sort of set to go, and then we just crack on with it as a shoot. I was going to ask where your ideas come from for that kind of thing, but you're just open. You can pick, you see something and you're just, your sort of channels are open to interpret those things and think, oh, that's an idea. Yeah, it's normally just like the most ridiculous thing I'd see someone. It's like, oh, that'd be cool. Maybe I should. It's kind of documentary work in the weirdest way, despite it being so contrived. Yeah. Um, My portfolio is very much like a, a documentary of stuff I like. Um, It's, you know, so it's a lot of junk food, a lot of kids' sweets. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much inspired by that sort of thing. So, you know, I'll just see something in a shop somewhere and I'm like, that's cool. We'll, we'll photograph that. Mm-hmm. I, when you said um, William Eggleston, I, it just totally makes sense when you see your work and his work, completely different work, but really so related as well. It really makes sense to me. Uh, yeah, I really got into his sort of like photographing the mundane. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, a lot of my images are like spaghetti hoops out of a tin. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like a cheap ice lolly. There's no, like, fancy gourmet food going on in my portfolio. Mm-hmm. It's in a very different, like, aesthetic to his work. But, yeah, it's, it's very, very much inspired by his sort of ethos of just photographing what's there. Yeah, definitely. So I was curious to follow this up then and, and say, have you... Because I know that um, the idea is that you do the test shoots and that's what's going to go in your portfolio to to really tell people what you can do. Have you got an example where that's really paid off for you, where you've just done a bit of personal work thinking, okay, this is where I want things to go for me. I'm going to do this personal work so that a client can see and then I'll I'll get that kind of work. Have you got a really a clear example of when that's happened and worked out like that? Yeah, I mean, the last shoot I've literally just finished was a direct booking based on exactly what I was posting. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's these images of like individual items lit in like a bold, heroic kind of way. Uh, the agency phoned up and just went, look, we've seen your work. We want you to do exactly that, mm-hmm. but for this brand. Um, and it was literally just like doing a test shoot for 10 days because it was mm-hmm. exactly what I'd have done anyway. Okay. And just, you know, to their sort of branding, I guess. Um, but almost all my works like I that I get booked for is like that. It's very much like, we've seen your work or we've seen your portfolio or your latest e-shot's gone out and we've just seen the images. We've got a project which fits this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so obviously during the summer i was sending out lots of ice lolly shots mm-hmm. you know and then coming towards christmas bizarrely enough we don't send christmas shots out because christmas is shot in like june and july mm-hmm. um but we do start sending out the new year new me sort of styled images and you know or some sort of clever plays on that and and you know that's generally where the work comes from it's just someone sees one of your projects and goes yes that that aligns with what we're about to do with this brand this would be a good match Mm -hmm. let's see if we can work together that's brilliant that must be super satisfying when when that happens it is it's it's a very it's a weird thing because obviously photography is a very well-paying profession and to be paid well to create something that i like is quite a weird uh sort of position to be in like so i come from a very working class background like my dad worked in a factory my mum's a stay-at-home mum um so we literally just you know you'd work for minimum wage and that's what you do and now all of a sudden people are paying me money which doesn't equate to any amount of time just for Mm -hmm. the way that i see things Mm -hmm. um which is a really it's very bizarre it's very satisfying it's very pleasing to go oh this is great the way that i see the world is kind of validated in a way yeah um which is nice i mean not not that i spend the money i don't really you know like i was saying earlier before the call like you know i drive a 12 year old car mm-hmm. um which cost me like 30 pounds a month to run mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> i wear the same clothes pretty much all the time i don't have any like branded stuff um i just sort of come to my studio with my cat do my work go home and play with the kids it's quite mm-hmm. a simple simple life so i don't you know need the money as such but it's quite nice to have that it's kind of like a validating figure i suppose when someone goes yes you're worth paying this much money to have yeah your vision of this put into an advert it's a nice nice yeah. feeling i suppose yeah one of my favorite photographers is uh, gregory heisler he's a portrait photographer and i was really lucky to talk to him a few weeks ago and um he was saying not on this on my interview but a few years ago i heard him saying you know like you have to shoot the way that you see you know you have to shoot things in your style um something like that i think more along the lines with the way that you see things and um people will hire you to do that um but the only the downside of that is if nobody likes the way that you see things then nobody's ever going to hire you so um that's obviously that's working out for you so yeah it's it's a real tricky thing um because i I do a lot of like portfolio reviews and like one-to-one mentoring on the side i say a lot Mm -hmm. i don't do a lot actually i do a little bit of it um there's a a limited amount of hours in the day sadly um but it's uh sometimes people come to you and it's like yeah that works perfectly executed but but it's got no financial value to it Mm -hmm. like that that's the way you see the world you're doing a great job of it but but it's not commercially viable um and that's unfortunate yeah um whereas at the moment the style of work i'm doing is incredibly commercially viable it hasn't always been but right now Mm -hmm. it really is Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point it'll fall out of that again so you sort of have mm-hmm. to you know make the money whilst you can and invest it wisely yeah um, but, so, it, but it is nice that when you know when I turn up to do a shoot and it's exactly the sort of style of work I do it's really easy for me to do it mm-hmm. like, there's no hard brain work going on it's just yeah well this is how it should look let's do it it's, yeah. it's quite easy and straightforward in that sense yeah that's that's really a, a good feeling I think so just on that note, and we'll move on in a second, but you styles preferences do change. You change over time and you'll grow as well. Is there an inkling for you of how things might evolve for you style-wise or are you just really in your groove at the moment and just doing what you do? I, I think I'm actually just about to start changing ever so slightly. Um, I, I think like looking back, so I take snapshots of my portfolio every like three months Um, because i'm constantly updating it and i can see at the moment it's changing slightly it's getting more simple um like everything's being far like pared back a lot more um so yeah maybe maybe it's going through a change at the moment but yeah i I fully accept that you know what i'm doing now won't be what i'm doing in 10 years um and i think Mm -hmm. it's probably not a good sign that if you know if i am doing the same thing in 10 years time it's probably something's gone wrong i'm open to change (laughs) I wanted to just take a couple of minutes to talk about your YouTube and your the other side, or side hustles, as you would say, that you have with YouTube, the Patreon and the uh, workshops, mentoring. Um, your YouTube channel is amazing. It's so um, such valuable info on there. No BS, straight to the point. No like long intros, download my free thing. 
you just get into it and you get out of it. I really appreciate that. And, and the information is so valuable for people coming into this profession. Um, I was wondering, why did you start that? Was it just to get, gain an audience or did you have um, more of a, an intention when you started it? And how has that been going for you with the YouTube? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a very calculated person. I guess uh, <laughs> I think it comes from my sporting background. So yeah, the aim of the YouTube channel was to I saw like a gap in the market. I guess there was no one on YouTube offering commercial photography advice from mm -hmm. the viewpoint of a commercial photographer. There's lots of educators offering it, but no one who was actually doing the work. Mm -hmm. um, which is fine. I you know I don't think you have to be a professional photographer to be a good educator. Um, and if anything, a lot of professional photographers are not good educators that's why they're professional photographers mm -hmm. um but i saw a gap in the market and i thought Do you know what i could uh leverage this a little bit and we're just approaching the brexit vote in the uk now the day the brexit vote happened um which was quite a long time before brexit happened i lost about forty thousand pounds of bookings in 24 hours right. um, and i genuinely thought i was gonna have to go and get a job which mm -hmm. i really didn't want to do and i was like right leading up to this brexit ordeal we need a side hustle so I'm going to set up this thing called Tin House Studios. We're going to sell paper backgrounds for food photography, portfolio reviews. That's what we're going to do. We'll set up the YouTube channel as a way to keep it separate from my Instagram because I didn't really want to meddle the two because there's, there's a bit of shame in the commercial world if you do anything but commercial photography is seen as a failure. Okay. Um, so there's a bit, of a bit of a, yeah, two different brands going on. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, we sort of set that up and got cracking with it. And then just before Brexit happened, we had a worldwide pandemic. So... It's so a good job I did set it up because there was a, <laughs> there was no work for a good 12 months. Mm -hmm, um, yeah. But yeah, and it, you know, I just sort of, I try and keep it as authentic as possible. You know, I don't sell things like presets or any like useless stuff like that. There's no mm -hmm. sign up to this free download so I can capture your details. It's very much just, here's a thing. If you want it, have it. If you don't, that's cool. And if not, here's some free content on YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's not designed to be a big money spinner. Um, I try and keep the prices affordable so like anyone could afford to buy one of the workshops um, so much so that we sell the first hundred tickets at half price um, on the agreement that if there's a problem with the workshop I get the feedback and I fix it like editing things like that syncing or if something's badly explained I can dive in and fix it before mm -hmm. it goes for sale at full price okay. um, so yeah that, that normally works out quite well and there's been the odd time where i've exported it and for some reason the audio's like fell out of sync and you know it saves any embarrassment to having charged a more reasonable price for it mm -hmm. um but yeah it was just one of those things i thought i'd give it a go my first video i did went down really well bizarrely i got like mm -hmm. twenty thousand hits in like the first two days oh wow uh, and then nothing after that <laughs> for, like, <laughs> the next six months i was getting like 200 hits um but yeah and it's one of those things i just went right i'll give it three years and see what happens. I'll just right. consistently post three years. I think I'm on my second year now. Right. Um, and then after three years, if it doesn't work, then we'll reassess. But it kind of is working, I guess. Yeah. Um, it doesn't get a lot of views. It's not like a huge channel. But then the information I'm putting out there is very niche. You know, there's not yeah. many people who actually want to be commercial photographers. Um, but it's also it's really hard to find that information. I think yeah, you're you're not reaching. You're not aiming for everybody. You're aiming for the small niche of people anyway. Yeah, so you're, and it, you're probably uh, getting the right eyes on it. Yeah, so it's a very small audience, but I think those who do want that information it is good for them. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I have a real quandary over information because I'm a firm believer that you know information should be free, but at the same time, I can't afford to create massive videos for free all mm -hmm. the time. Yeah. Um, so coming from an academic background, and probably something the pandemic sort of really highlighted is you can't just go and get a medical journal and read it. You have to pay an obscene amount of money to be able to read actual scientific information. Mm -hmm. um, it's not free to the masses. There's a real like uh, financial <laughs> blockage there. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the same with photography. So I've tried to, what I've done is I've worked out how much it costs me to make these videos um, in time. Like if I take away a day of my time for shooting, instead of getting paid for it how much would it cost me not without making not with making profit but just cost me and mm -hmm. i try and bill it accordingly so it's sort of it doesn't cost me any money to make it but it still costs other people to receive it yeah it's quite a trick one because i also don't want to put other people who are professional educators out of business by going here's everything you need to know for free because that's not fair on them because they have you know they've got a right to make a living too so it's a bit yeah. of a 
It's a bit of a quandary for me. Is yeah. It? <laughs> I mean, I think you're an expert at what you do and you shouldn't, there's, it's a tricky thing with YouTube, isn't it? Because a lot of information is just out there, but you shouldn't have to feel like you need to give away the experience that you've worked hard for a long time to gain. So this definitely has a value and people will pay for it and they'll be happy to do so, I'm sure. Yeah, um, you, know, you know, try and just keep it reasonable. It's not, you know, you can spend a lot of money on like education and it's not necessarily good. Uh, <laughs> yeah and having you know done that in the past myself i'm like great they've taught me all this stuff i spent a lot of money on it that's cool but it has nothing to do with the working commercial photography world yeah exactly so you're bringing them right to the sort of cold face as it were so yeah but bizarrely enough there's a lot of resistance from that because there hasn't been this information readily available before mm-hmm. in such a way there's a lot of photographers who unfortunately think that the commercial world is a certain way Mm-hmm. Um, because that's what they've been told for the last five, six years on the internet, whereas mm-hmm. actually it's nothing like that. Right. You know, it's, it's quite strange. It's a... <laughs> mm. uh, so there's the YouTube, you've got video workshops on your website, that's what we've just been talking yes, about. Yeah. And then that you also have mentoring as well, which I think would be super valuable for uh, someone getting into the industry. Yeah, so I only take on a few people. I take on three people at any time. Well, I take on the equivalent of three gold memberships at any time, so it kind mm-hmm. of varies with the exact number. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think two of them have now signed with agents. Um, one's just shot the first big commercial campaign with like usage and everything like that in it. Um, another one who's already actually been a photographer for longer than I had, um, just reorganized his portfolio because he'd kind of gone stagnant. Um, spent a couple of months just working on that, making sure it was like, you know, up to scratch because you know, you often need extra eyes on your work. Mm. Um, and that's one of the benefits of having an agent. So my agent will constantly be like, you need to go and do this, you need this, you know, or stop doing that, whatever it may be. Okay, let's jump ahead to um, the Gear Round, okay? Gear Round is sponsored by MPB. And so if you are on a shoot, what would be your go-to then camera and lens combination for food photography? So I use use a bit of a weird camera, actually. I use a 5DSR, which Mm -hmm. is sort of Canon's best bang for book camera i think for commercial work um and then i use a thing called a cambo actus Mm -hmm. uh, which is a large format bellows system um so you can literally focus as close as the item touching the glass Mm -hmm. um but you've also got tilt shift rise fall and swing on the lens you can do some really creative stuff with the focus Um, and then i use a mamiya secor 90 millimeter 3.4 lens Okay. Um, which is a, a six by seven lens, which draws a huge image circle. So mm-hmm. I can do really extreme angles and still get everything in focus. So I can right. like, shoot a 45 degree angle at like f5.6 and have from the front to the back completely tack sharp, right, okay. um, which is very important in the sort of work I do. Everything needs to be perfectly in focus all the time. So that's like SLR type body with like a bellows between that. And, yeah. uh, and then there's like the medium format lens on the front. Yeah. So how did you come up with that? That's really unique. So, <laughs> it's, um, so I started off using a 5DSR and a 90mm tilt shift lens. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, this doesn't work. So I'm still having to focus stack. And if anything's moving in the frame, I can't focus stack because it's moved. Mm-hmm. So any like splashes or movement like that, it's not, not viable. So I needed a better way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my mate Kev, who works for a camera store, he was like, oh, you can get this thing, which is like a large format bellow system, and you can put a lens on the end of it. And I was like, brilliant. He went, I've got one. Do you want it? And I was like, yes, I'll have it. <laughs> so I bought that from there. And um, yeah, then I bought the lenses like on eBay. Mm-hmm. And I bought one off my mate. And uh, cause I only own a 50 and a 90 millimeter lens for that system. Okay. Because I either want distortion or I don't want distortion. 50 millimeter lenses are quite distortion-y when you get, mm-hmm. up, get up close enough. Yeah. And 90 millimeter, less so. Um, but yeah, and it's just been a really good, good system for me. Although often we rent kit for shoots anyway, so that's what I'll use in the studio. But on a big campaign, we'll probably end up using a phase one back. Okay. Um, with probably the 120 Schneider blue ring lens. Okay. Some serious kit there. And so you're using a, like a studio stand rather than a tripod, I guess. Yeah. We, we normally rent a cambo when we're shooting out so basically we don't shoot in my studio for big jobs because we're in Leicester we have to go to London okay. so we normally use a cambo stand in London because that's what everyone has and we use a Manfrotto uh, studio stand in my studio which okay. is what I have 
and then lighting and so on. Where, what kind of kit are you using for lighting? Uh, so I use Broncolor lights and packs. Um, nothing fancy, uh, like quite old. I say nothing fancy. Broncolor is obviously fancy, mm-hmm. um, but they're old, like they're like 1990s lighting. Mm-hmm. And I have a particular interest in the Broncolor hazy lights, okay. uh, which back in the day were like these like £10,000 softboxes. Okay. Um, so I've got two of those in the studio that I've acquired uh, okay. through various you normally find them when a studio goes bust which is quite sad but that's how you get them right. and then <laughs> they're like pretty rare so yeah i'll go and pick those up and uh rebuild them in my studio okay so okay so w- describe that and what is it giving to you that another softbox isn't so it, it's kind of like it's a one by one meter softbox um, and it comes on a stand bigger than a studio stand it's like a huge stand with like a uh, rollers on it so you can raise it and move it forwards and backwards and it, rather than being a soft box, it's a okay. solid box. Like it's a hard shaped, shallow box. Um, and then there's a glass splitter just in front of the head. And then there's a solid piece of like um, perspex sort of stuff over the front of it. Okay. So you get a completely even catch light on anything. Um, but you can also attach like the Broncola head. So Broncola do like a 3,200 watt and a 6,400 watt head. Um, so you can, you know, you right. can move that light on the other side of the studio and still get F16 which is pretty useful and it just gives it just gives a very different quality of light mm-hmm. to what most people have it's not necessarily better or worse well i think it's better but it's not you know it's not like a, you need it to do this um but it just looks different and you can always tell when it's shot with a hazy light yeah it's just some one of those other things that's just adding into your style isn't it yeah absolutely um okay that's really really interesting and then you're shooting tethered presumably software that kind of thing what kind of stuff are you using? yeah so we, we shoot tethered into we're currently shooting into m1 mac minis mm-hmm. that's my cat was knocking over stuff on the <laughs> um yeah we shoot into an m1 mac mini we use these bizarre orange cables which are not tether tools cables so it's usb c mm-hmm. uh, they're 10 meters long and they're powered and that goes into capture one um then capture one i have the pilot on my phone and on my ipad so the ipad will be with the client on my phone i'll just be able to walk around and fire it and change settings if i want to um although often i let the digitech do that we tend not to touch the camera if at all possible when shooting it mm-hmm. um, and then we use a bit of software called chronosync and we'll have um, two two terabyte uh, T5 SSDs plugged into the M1 Mini. And Chronosync, every time I take a frame, it'll back everything up from the main hard drive to those two external hard drives. Right. Um, and whilst the main hard drive also backs up to a thing called Backblaze on the cloud. So it's pretty... <laughs> Pretty pretty uh, intensive backing up. Yeah, but you need that robust kind of system for the work that you're doing, no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like... Before, when we used to use um, Lightroom, which was like the worst software for tethering, mm-hmm. um, you could record to like two memory cards inside the camera at the same time. But obviously, with Capture One, you can't. So you, you record to two external hard drives instead. So it's the same, but it's actually slightly better. Um, and yeah, then it all just gets ingested into my main archive system. Um, and then, yeah, cool. keep the finals. And then I just never delete anything. So there's like hard drives everywhere. Yeah, yeah, they add up. Any other... Um favorite accessory or anything random that hasn't come up um i mean i use a lot of benq monitors Mm -hmm. um, because i'm too poor to buy iso or too tight to buy iso (laughs) um yeah basically just use a lot of i mean a lot of my work is shot with hard lights so we use a lot of these p60 and p70 broncolor reflectors Mm -hmm. um which are particularly nice um but then like you know the the packs and stuff i use that they are really old packs it's not modern equipment you know, you could buy one of the, the lights I use plus a pack for like £800 on eBay. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I'm shooting on, for my test shoots, we don't use like £15,000 lights. Yeah. On commercial jobs we do, but we rent everything for commercial jobs. We don't use my kit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we rent the entire thing because it's got to be the best of the best. Okay. Um, whereas I can't justify having that stuff sat around in the office just yeah. eating up stuff. And yeah. I guess the only other thing is I recently bought a, a video camera. Um, having never owned a video camera before, I've always just used my DSLR, so I bought a, a Blackmagic 6K, um, which I started using for a bit of creative food video work and obviously doing it with YouTube as well, which is absolutely overkill. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's quite quite a good little setup as well. Cool. Uh, so interesting to hear all that. Even, you know, most of us photographers would say we're not about the gear and everything, but it's it's really interesting to dig into what you're actually using there. And yeah, I think, you know, as much as it's not about the gear, like you don't have to have the best, mm-hmm. choosing the right gear for your style and aesthetic is very important. Yeah, totally. 
Okay, wondered if there's anything you bought, you just never used it. You thought it was a good idea, but it's never seen the light of day. God, loads of things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what about, I'm just looking around my office now at stuff which is like still in just packaging. Everything. <laughs> um, what's the least used thing I've got? I've got a 70 to 200 millimeter lens that's been out on loan to friends of mine for about three years I've never used. That seemed like a good idea at the time. Um <laughs> I don't know. I've got like these little cameras on gimbals, GoPros. I've got three GoPros in here. They never get used. Mm-hmm. They're they're just devaluing and doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, probably GoPros. Okay. It seems like such a cool idea when you buy it, and then you look at the actual image quality of it, and you go, "Yeah, it's great that it's really small, but it's also really rubbish." There's, mm. there's like, <laughs> it's got a very small use. Um, although I did buy, I bought a, a Fuji. 100 you know the one that looks like a rangefinder mm-hmm. i was like yeah this would be my camera that i take around with me everywhere to take pictures of sat in my bag for six months um and i never used it so i just sold it um that's that probably the worst purchase i made because i just use my phone for my pictures what you should do is trade some of that stuff to mpb mpb buys sells and trades thousands of items each week and everything comes with a six-month warranty uh, most of us do have stuff that we've never used or are not using anymore, so why not trade your unused gear to MPB for something you will use? Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes where you can get a quote for selling your unused kit to MPB, and I'll make a link to all the gear Scott mentioned. So thanks again to MPB for sponsoring the show. We move on to, this is a round called Double Exposure, okay? Okay. I'd like to pick a photograph of yours, which I think is quite interesting, and I'm going to get you to talk about it. And then I'll ask you to pick one that's got a good story attached to it or something along those lines. So I've picked a few out. And two that I'm really looking at, there's a burger bursting through the paper. And I think I'm going with the cereal with the milk coming down. So That's a recent one, yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. I know that I've seen it around on your social media a bit. So I think maybe this is one that you like as well. Um, so can you talk a little bit about or describe the picture for people and uh, talk about the story behind that one? Yeah, the cereal bowl shot. That was part of a project I shot um, about guilty pleasures. So it was like a crisp sandwich, Coke float, milkshake with French fries in it, that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. And mm-hmm. this was one of the shots we did. Um, and I really, you know, I love red on red or any sort of like matching colour foreground background. It's a real like thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so the shot itself is Lucky Charms. Um, but obviously no one can afford to buy that many Lucky Charms. So it's actually porridge oats up to the rim of the bowl uh. <laughs> um, and then Lucky Charms placed on top. Um, and then, yeah, poured the milk down from a height. I was working with a stylist called Jess Tofts, um, who I collaborate with now and again. And it's just literally a single frame. The milk hit, got the splash. Um, it's lit with a single light. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used a Pixapro AD1200. Mm-hmm. Um, because they, they gave me one. I was like, thank you. That's very nice. I'll have that. And, uh, <laughs> and I don't actually own another light that can freeze action. So that's okay. like anything with frozen action on here is shot with a Pixapro AD1200 because it's all I've got. Okay. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we used to use that one light, bare bulb, you know, no modifiers. It was shot with a 90mm lens uh, on the 5DSR, F16, 100 ISO, 200th of a second. And yeah, it's... Um, turned out pretty well to be honest it, we weren't expecting it to be that easy we thought we we're going to be there for like half a day because with these splash shots yeah. you'd normally take the shot of the well we did we took the shot of the bowl first perfectly lit with the mm-hmm. cereal in the perfect place and then you expect to have to use that as a back plate and then to photoshop in the milk splash afterwards yeah um, but yeah it just it just so happened to work first time which was convenient yeah that's a really good story actually so i have some follow-up questions the pixar pro light how is it do you know what it's really so it's really good before that we used to rent the elb 1200 from elinquil mm-hmm. um and they are expensive um, i think they're like three times the cost of the pix pro one the mm-hmm. elinquil one is better um as you'd hope for the price mm-hmm. but the pix pro one is good enough mm-hmm. um and it's still expensive like it's a 1500 pound light it's not like it's you know pocket change yeah um but yeah i mean I, i've started it's set up in my studio all the time now because i've got a mains power adapter for it so 
I've been using it for a while. I did a thing where I shot it non-stop for 24 hours just to see whether it blew up or not, and it didn't. Okay, wow. Which is good. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, that high-end stuff is really good. Yeah, and the the other follow-up I have about this was who poured the milk? Was that the uh, stylist? The stylist. Okay, and then you press the button. I pressed the button. I okay. actually did press the actual button on this and look through the viewfinder, which is not something I'd normally do. That's old, yeah. old school. Um, and the other thing, the splash is just, it's delicious. It's perfect. I love it. Yeah, I mean, I think the milk is half milk and half cream. Is that a stylist kind of trick then? Yeah, I think so. It's, like, it's really hard to get milk to look nice. It looks kind of yellow and like slightly see-through okay. in real life. So, But you don't really realise that a lot of the time. Okay, it's really cool. Uh, I love cereal, so I'm right into that picture. Let me um, throw it back to you then. Is there one shot that's just got an epic story or a memorable event or something that go- uh, goes with it, a good anecdote at least? So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll go with a shot that got me signed. Okay. Um, and that is the hamburger and french fries. Uh, it's a flat lay on a blue blue background. Um, he's like beautiful hot dogs and french fries and it's got this like um do you remember the 3d sort of uh films in the cinema where you had that like double shadow mm-hmm. and you had to put your special glasses on to make it look 3d yeah so we kind of lit it in that way and i've never had such a positive reaction from commercial art buyers and such a negative reaction from photographers right, every okay. photographer goes there's double shadows on that why why, do, why don't you fix it Mm-hmm. And every art buyer goes, that's really cool. Um, yeah. But yeah, this is the the wow factor shot that used to be the first double page spread in my portfolio. And every time an agent opened it, they just loved it. And the shot happened by accident. Um, so we were supposed to be doing a shot of a hot dog and it just wasn't working. It was on a mm-hmm. test shoot with Ellie. Um, and yeah, it just wasn't working at all. And I was like, we, we was like, oh, we'll have lunch and then reassess the situation. And we got back from lunch and was like, right, let's just do a flat lay. And we made it absolutely millimeter perfect. And then it looked like I'd just done it in Photoshop with a clone stamp. Mm-hmm. So then we had to very carefully knock everything slightly out of place. So it looked just enough out of place to be done in real life, mm-hmm. but not so much that it was an absolute mess. And um, yeah, this, this image here was definitely the start of the change of the way that I shot food. Okay. Up until this image, I was doing that more gastro sort of, you know, editorial look. And then once we did this here, I was sort of like, yes, this is exactly yeah, what I'm going to do going forward. It's really, it's obviously, it's a striking shot. I get why you say photographers don't like it because of the double shadow, but that's just photographers. You know, we, we get so hung up on things being, can't be this, can't be that. But yeah. other people don't have those hang ups and... um they can just see it for what it is. I think it's cool. So um, how deep were you into the process of just doing the hot dog when you had to say, no, we need to change direction? Here? Two hours into it. <laughs> it was okay. going so bad. I'd like, I'd completely forgotten about how bad it was until recently. But yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. And I just had to make an executive decision. I was like, we can't waste any more time on this. It's awful. It doesn't work. Yeah. Um, but, but it's interesting with the, the viewer photographers on work. It's... um. I, I did a picture recently of these toffee apples as like a forest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do a lot of, a lot of the images I do, I do for our youngest son. Um, cause he has like additional needs as well. And he like, he really likes the fact that I take pictures for a living. So I take pictures of food he mm-hmm. likes. So like chicken nuggets is like his main thing, but I started trolling him. Like I did a broccoli forest, like broccoli. He just hates it. Like right. the thought of broccoli. So I made this little forest of where it comes from. And the same with these um, toffee apples, because he's like, he doesn't like it because he thinks someone's trying to hide fruit and healthy stuff inside a sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, but every <laughs> photographer was like, the catch light's on the wrong side for where the sun's setting in the background. Mm-hmm. I was just like, well, yeah, but also t- toffee apple forests don't exist. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't think the, <laughs> the catch light placements of uh, the greatest concern here. There's a, (laughs) there's more to this that doesn't make sense than that. Like, I think, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I think it's easy, like, to just get a bit, like, tied down. Like, it has to be this, it has to be that. It can be anything you want it to be. Nothing has to make sense. Nothing has to be real. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to fit any particular narrative. You can just do whatever you want, and that's fine. That, I I love that, what you've just said there. It just, it's such a great um, attitude for allowing creativity. Do you know? so, okay, we'll leave it there. Thanks a lot for that, Scott. See you no Last round, okay? Motor drive. Quick fire round. Go for it. Wide angle or telephoto? Uh, wide angle. 
coffee or tea. I know this one. Coffee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, this one, I'm not sure which way you're going to go on. Expensive lens cloth or just the corner of your shirt? Corner of my shirt. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, what's your go-to emoji? Um, well, I don't really use them. <laughs> ah, okay. I think I'm too old. <laughs> <laughs> okay um okay uh, i'd like to do a local music search here so leicester bands who's the best band ever from leicester oh that's a tough one it would have been kasabian up until recent events um but now we have a band here called easy life who are pretty good okay easy life okay link in the show notes um what's a weird thing i can find in your camera kit oh a weird thing in my camera kit. Maybe some leftover watsits or something from one of your shoots. Oh, uh, yeah. Th- there's often something sticky in a bag. Unexplained stickiness, which is never great. You must be quite rigorous with tidying up after sh- these shoots, right? Because stuff is going to get everywhere, right? <laughs> I, I, I'm i not, but someone else is, yeah. We... <laughs> <laughs> it's even better that way. Okay. Yeah. Um, name uh, one photographer that we should all know about. Oh, probably William Eggleston. Okay. I think he's a, uh, yeah, perhaps one of the more interesting photographers who's made commercial success out of their work. Okay. And last one, when do you feel at peace with the universe? Rarely. <laughs> <laughs> probably about two seconds before falling asleep each night. Right. Okay. You get um, quite um, anxious or stressed or what's going on? I have a very overactive mind. I only just realized in recent years why my mother made me do two sports clubs a day. Ah, okay. <laughs> okay. But when you're at work, do you go into sort of a flow state, do you think? Only when editing video, which is why I enjoy it so much. I've got my okay. headphones on and I have to fully focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of the time I'm doing like 15 things at once, normally badly. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's tricky, isn't it? So, that was one of the things that really drew me to you because you're you seem very clear about what you're doing and where you're going and your your sort of train of thought about it. Um, I'm I'm like what you just described. I've got 15 things to do, and often I'm trying to do them all at the same time in different windows. It can be exhausting and stressful. So I was I was thinking, well, maybe this guy must have something that I don't have. But you've got a way of training yourself to just stay on track i think yeah and i'm very good at ignoring things um so like my inbox i'll just have a quick look on my phone now and see what's going on so i've missed 16 calls this morning 57 text messages and 131 emails and it doesn't bother me at all okay like i'm quite good at ignoring that where some people would get caught up in the whole like oh god i've got to get back to these check all the emails make sure you know i'm really good at just going if it's important, they'll continuously ring. Okay. Like, and that's fine. I need to focus on what I need to get done today. So, like, today my main thing is I've got to edit this series of images and I've also got to have a, a call with my agent. That's all I've got to get done today. They're my main things. Anything else is just creative work. Um, and, yeah, I'm quite good at, like, pushing all the time-consuming rubbish out. And I'm also really good at outsourcing things. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I outsource everything. Mm-hmm. Um, like, DIY in the studio, I outsource. Cleaning's outsourced admins outsourced accounting like everything is outsourced so i have as like as little to do as possible so mostly the, the busyness in my brain is mostly creative ideas and like trying to start too many at once mm-hmm. okay i think we could go on to, to discuss that because i'm i'm an ideas person as well but anyway i'll thank you for your time scott it's been awesome thank i really much. loved this conversation thank you I hope you have a good day thank you so much for listening Follow Scott on Instagram and check out his website and I highly recommend his YouTube channel. Links to everything we spoke about are in the show notes. If you like this episode, then check out my conversations with commercial photographer Craig Fraser and food photographer Donna Krause, both from season one. That's all for now. Take it easy, enjoy your photography and I'll see you out there.